Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 22 of Sleep Talk, and I'm joined again by my co-host, Dr. Moira Young. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. And have you had a good week, Moira? Yeah, a good month, in fact. Yeah, um, you've had a particularly busy month. And I, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll ask you about that trip to Canberra that you had in, in a couple of minutes. So this episode, we're going to follow up to last episode where we talked about why treat sleep apnea, and we're going to talk about ways of treating sleep apnea and really ask that question, if you've made a decision about treating sleep apnea, what are you actually going to do? What are the options? How are we going to make a decision about what type of treatment someone's going to use? And we've got a couple of guests that are going to help us out, uh, Dr. Brad Edwards and Professor Stuart Mackay, and you'll hear from them later in the episode. So Moira, tell us about your exciting trip to Canberra. Definitely the most topical thing that's happened in the sleep world, I think, in the last month, in, in Australia particularly. Mm-hmm. So we went to the, the Sleep Health Foundation launched a report called A Sleep on the Job. We'll put a link to the whole full report. It's a 100-page or so report, so I won't go into it too much. But it was had a lot of alarming statistics to show the sort of the, the economic impact on Australia mm-hmm. in terms of productivity. And it was, you know, something like $66, million, oh, $66 billion per annum just in Australia alone in yeah. terms of lost productivity and in terms of well-being, yeah. you know, more, you know, increased morbidity and mortality. Yeah, just from sleep disorders. Just from inadequate yeah, inadequate sleep, from sleep yeah. disorders. So that's a good point. That some, Say four in Australians or so are reporting not having adequate sleep mm-hmm. and roughly say two out of – did I say four in ten? Four in <laughs> ten, ten is what I meant. If it, uh, say four in ten and two, in, two of those, so half of those – would be around sleep disorders, mm-hmm. and two would be lifestyle related stuff, whether or work, like just just inadequate sleep in general, just not getting enough sleep, yeah. but not necessarily a sleep disorder underlying, or yet at least. Yeah. So it was just exciting. It was great to be part of that. We um, sleep adaptation in relation, you know, in partnership with Australasian Sleep Association. Mm-hmm. We had a, say four or five of us each from those both organisations went up there, launched the report on the one night, and then there was meetings. As well with you know with various people with sort of political engagement and just 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 education as round. Come on, name drop. <laughs> Who'd you talk to? <laughs> um, I wasn't involved necessarily in that part. I uh-huh. but on the night of where the report, the health minister, federal federal health minister Greg Hunt came and oh, nice launched job. it. Nice job. And he was excellent. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> he was really impressive. We were. I was just. I was so impressed with his passion for it. His understanding of it. He spoke without notes about all the statistics. Like mm-hmm. here I'm saying I won't go into the statistics because I can't remember them all, <laughs> basically. He just seemed to know, every, you know, he knew he knew everything about the report. So I guess what we're hoping, you know, obviously the whole idea of the report is hoping for increased uh, what funding, increased awareness, increased lobbying, you know, increased ways of responding, how are we going to treat people and yeah. how are we going to prevent it as well? Yeah. And I thought, think the report was really well presented and it does put the impact of sleep disorders in language politicians can understand. Dollar, yes. Dollars. <laughs> which, which then yeah. helps them make decisions about allocation of resources. Because yeah. you, you can say, okay, there's that much cost over there, we should mm. divert that amount of resources to that mm. and yeah. it helps prioritise yeah. sleep. Absolutely. And putting it into things of the context of the past, I, I mean, I think I might have spoken to you about I was really excited when I got back. I felt like a, a child on Christmas night or something. Just really, really excited. Yeah. And I felt that I was big part of something that's going to be that's big and it's mm-hmm. interesting and it's, and it's 
um, in the same way that people who might have been lobbying for seatbelt legislation back in the 1970s when there was just absolute carnage and no one really knew what was going on. I mean, yeah. I, I've had plenty of trips up and down the New Highway to Queensland from Melbourne, you know. So many kids in the car are unrestrained and we're very lucky nothing ever happened. Yeah. We didn't know it was a problem. Similarly, on that same trip, we all burnt ourselves to crisps and we didn't know about the risk of sun damage. So those kind of those big issues like, say, smoking and skin cancer and sleep belts, the things that we take for granted now that are big, big public health issues. Yep. And sort of, and there's policies around that and, and that's how I feel that this report is the start of that. And I'm really, it's just, it's just really exciting. Yeah, it was lovely to see quite a lot of media coverage and oh. hopefully that'll generate some momentum that'll yes. just keep that discussion going. It was inundated with 360 media things. Whether what? Wow. On that day and in the following week. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, it was really, really great. So just, just let's just hope that it does come to something. Yeah. That's, that's the Because we want to make, we want to make sleep sexy. You know, we want to you know shift that societal way of thinking about sleep. Of well, that's the thing you sort of push to the side or yeah, trade off sleep later for, on. for yeah. everything else. Yeah, I think those days are long. well. Hopefully, I think that there's. In fact, I'll probably we'll have to start advocating for um, not too much scaremongering because that's the problem yeah. that happens, as we've talked about before, when Simon Frankel was our guest. Yeah. Sometimes it's just really important information and really interesting statistics, and it's all. It just can just get. Uh, a media beat up sometimes or the wrong messages and people can just get really scared rather than informed. We've got to be careful too about, you know, one night of bad sleep is not to be that alarming. You know, we have to yeah. put in perspective and context all the time. Exactly. When we, when we talked with Simon, that was our fear that that research he was talking about from the sleep meeting in Boston about a night of bad sleep is going to give yeah. you dementia. Yes. And absolutely, those headlines came and I had I media know. people asking me, so, so is it true? Can you yes. comment on this, yes. this article? Well, it was on the radio last week in Melbourne. But luckily, and I didn't hear that, it was a guest, um, he's a researcher at Swinburne. My brother alerted me to it and said, oh, apparently, and it's about REM sleep, less REM sleep is indica- you know, sort of associated with uh, more risk of dementia, apparently, according to his research. And my brother had, um, who sleeps really well, but our father had dementia, mm-hmm. and he was like, oh, yay, just heard this thing on the radio, yay, at least I can, I, I can keep it at bay. <laughs> so I can go in the other way as well. That yep. it, There's these alarming statistics of people so someone who wasn't sleeping well would think, oh, no, I'm going to get dementia. But by the same token, someone who thinks he's about that association and knows that they do get plenty of REM sleep can feel have some less anxiety in some way. So it's, it can go both yeah, ways Yeah, exactly. As well, and it, you know. it, is, it just shows you the trickiness of getting the messaging right Yeah, and trying to put out some positive messages. Yeah, well, it has to be a nuanced message. You can't, people can't listen with just in black and white terms. Yeah. When you hear something, you've got to be put scrutiny you know, onto it. Yeah. Anyway, what else has been topical? I've 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 hogged that that section. What else has been topical? Well, for me personally, I had a really lovely time at Golden Door Health Retreat the oh, other, other weekend. Yes, so I had a nice four days there and love talking about sleep there. I just love mm. spending time and talking to the guests about sleep. Yes, and it's funny you go to a health retreat and people think oh, I'm going to sleep fantastic because I'm away from home. Yeah, people almost always at least start their time there not sleeping so well. Yeah, um, but you're back in your villa by about um, eight eight o'clock at night, yeah. and then not doing tai chi till six thirty the next morning. So you've got this ten it's and a, a half time. hour sort of block, and often the sleep will spread across that 
space. Yeah. yeah. So it's an interesting discussion talking about people about sleep there and the observation people always have is even if sleep doesn't work so well when they're there they always feel fantastic and that is does reinforce for me it ain't all about the sleep yes it's actually yeah exactly it's it's the stress and the worry sometimes and the busyness and 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 why you feel so tired and the lack of self-care and self-nurturing yeah and when you add back in some of that yeah feels good yeah and are they there some of them they're not necessarily there to do with their sleep per se are they they just they come and attend a talk that you're giving. Yeah, so some are some are and some aren't. Yeah, but the majority of guests are recognising that there's something that they're mm. struggling with. Yeah, um, they're yeah. being overly busy or other yeah. health yes. issues. Yeah, and want to take some time out and reset and refocus on some positive health goals. So the theme for this month's podcast is how to treat sleep apnea. What are the ways of deciding which type of treatments to use and what are the treatment options? So just to get you back up to speed, if you haven't listened to the last episode of the podcast where we did talk about why treat sleep apnea, there's really three main reasons. One being if people have got symptoms, disturbed sleep, feeling more sleepy during the day. The second being if the bed partner's disturbed, so snoring's disturbing a bed partner or that sort of restlessness or changes in breathing disturbing a bed partner. And the third reason being considering health risk. And that's the bit that's changed recently. We talked in the last episode about data from uh, the SAVE study done or coordinated from Australia showing that treating sleep apnea with CPAP didn't reduce cardiovascular risk as much as people had thought it might, but did reduce symptoms of depression. So still may well be important in terms of managing health problems, but not so much about the cardiovascular side. If people are, the decision's been made, what treatments are actually available? So there's a range of treatments for sleep apnea. The one that often people start with or think about the most is CPAP. And I'll come back to that. But I wanted to start with some of the things that don't work. There's no shortage of things that are promoted on Facebook, online, over the counter at the pharmacy for Mm. snoring and sleep apnea. Pretty much if it sounds too good to be true. It, it is. It, <laughs> it's not true. It's, yeah. it, it is. So pretty much anything you can buy over the counter is going to have limited effectiveness. And that includes all those sprays and strips and things. The exception is for people who've got really narrow nose nostrils. So they notice if they're breathing through their nostrils, it's really hard to get the air in. Then sometimes nasal dilators, some little things you can buy that stick up the nose, like a mute snoring device, uh, can help with snoring. Now, the next group of things to talk about is lifestyle factors. So definitely good data on losing weight, reducing the severity of sleep apnea. And it's a great strategy because it also helps with overall health and helps reduce health risk. So really important. Can I cut in there? Because do you think that, I'm glad to hear there's good data on that, because do you think that that's probably under pushed? Or, or, I mean, I suppose your experience is you, because you probably talk to people about it, but my experience is across the board, a lot of patients, they haven't had that conversation with their doctor or their physician. I reckon it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. So I reckon because CPAP works so well, Mm -hmm. there's often that conversation or that discussion is, well, just go on CPAP. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Don't lose weight. Don't have to worry about that. Just go on CPAP. Yeah. But then it also goes the other way. And I see sometimes people who've got pretty significant sleep apnea and they're feeling pretty sleepy and just get told, go off and lose weight. Mm. And that's not helpful either, mm. because if someone's so sleepy that they're falling asleep everywhere. They haven't got the energy to go walking and get up early. Yeah, and exactly. They're, tough, so they're yeah. not going to get up early. Yeah. They can't, you know, to lose weight, you've got to have the energy to do the food preparation, to have planned to go to the shop, to get the oh, food yeah, you need, to, the to prepare joy. the, yeah, right, <laughs> to know. prepare the healthy meals. Mm. And 
and things. And if you're dog tired, mm. no, nah, your chances of doing mm. that are pretty low. Mm. So, yeah, weight loss is really important, but not that straightforward because mm. if people are actually feeling pretty sleepy, it's hard for them to do. What else works no, or doesn't work? <laughs> to, don't worry, draw me out more. Challenge me, I'm happy with that. You love to talk about sleep, so do I. <laughs> yeah. So next on the lifestyle factors would be physical activity. So there is some data on people that are more physically fit having less in the way of sleep apnea. So something about muscle tone and particularly muscle tone in the upper airway. So that's those paper that was published. It seems weird, but a German didgeridoo instructor published something in the British Medical Journal about playing the didgeridoo, reducing snoring and sleep yes, apnea. We've spoken about that, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. And the Brazilian group that's published up a couple of papers now on upper airway exercises that reduce um, snoring and sleep apnea. And I also reckon in lifestyle factors, it's important to look after physical and mental health because even then if you've got a bit of sleep apnea and it's impacting on energy levels through the day and maybe impacting on mood if you're looking after yourself and you've got that sort of self-care and nurturing you're going to be a bit more resilient to the impact of that and it's not going to weigh on you quite as much another conservative thing people can try is avoiding sleeping on their back for a subset of people sleep apnea is worse when they're on their back and not so much on their side problem is we've told people in the past use things like a pillow or a tennis ball those things really don't work you know people get acclimatized to them there's been no studies longer than six weeks showing that oh. those things have any oh. ongoing i still talk about the tennis ball thing you reckon that's no good no evidence there's short-term evidence yeah but in terms of long-term evidence the sort of thing that people go it's a sustainable treatment i'm going to be able to use on an ongoing basis yeah. nada yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely nothing oh. But there is one device that's got a data out to a year, and that's the night shift device, a little device that sits on the back of the neck, and if you're lying on your back, it vibrates and prompts you to roll onto your mm. side. Yeah. Quite like that device because mm. I can also plug it into the computer, download the data, show that it's actually working. Yeah. So it tells me, is someone using it? Is it doing yeah. what, I, what I want them to do? Hearing more about that, actually, just in, in my practice, like people sort of mentioning in passing that they use that. Some of the works coming out of Monash University, some really nice work about the effect of body position on sleep apnea and using positional therapies. Mm. So some nice Australian research uh, promoting that. Now, to come to CPAP, and I'm not talking about the sort of CPAP that gets promoted on Facebook. There's a device called the Air Ring that everybody has seen on Facebook. That's this little thing that sits on the nose and it's the hoseless yeah. CPAP. Yeah. It's a make-believe thing. It does not actually exist. Fake news. Fake news. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Or in tech terms, vaporware, something, oh, something that, does, that doesn't it actually exist. It literally doesn't exist. You're it, kidding it, me. Oh, it gosh. literally does not exist. But they've raised uh, millions of dollars of venture capital. With so where does that go? Into product development. Right. <laughs> that's three years that's been in product development and so far. Oh, no product. So it's coming. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I think I think it's throwing good money after bad mm. is more investment in that. So yeah, don't be seduced by ah. the air ring or the promise of the hoseless CPAP because unfortunately yeah. it doesn't, doesn't exist. exist at the moment. At the moment, <laughs> but the CPAP that does work. So CPAP stands for continuous positive airway pressure. So the principle is it's a mask that fits over the nose or the nose and mouth. Uh, and that attaches to a machine, and the machine blows air via a tube through the mask and applies a positive pressure to the back of the airway so that when you go to sleep and muscles relax, instead of things tending to collapse, it's held open in a nice open airway. Now, the positive for CPAP, it is exquisitely effective, works beautifully, completely stops snoring and obstructive sleep apnea. The downside is it's a pretty cumbersome sort of treatment. 
and does take a bit of getting used to. Mm. Uh, and I tend to find that people who've got more in the way of symptoms do a bit better with CPAP. Think of it as you've got more to gain yeah. and therefore you'll put up with something that's a little bit more intrusive. So do you – I mean, we can get on to that later actually about the, what people – what they find so hard about it. And when you say cumbersome or intrusive, we can discuss yeah, that later. Just, yeah, but, but well, partly it's not an intuitive thing to do. So part of what's happening is it's literally applying a positive pressure. Mm. When you breathe in, that doesn't feel so strange. But when you go to breathe out, it feels like you're trying to breathe out against something mm. and it feels like you're trying to push out. And that's a strange sort of feeling often for people to get used to. Yeah. And for it to work, you've got to get an airtight seal around yeah. the mask. And if it's all airtight and sitting nicely, it's quiet and everything's good. Mm. The minute it starts to leak, it's noisy and you get a sense mm. of there's just air blowing and it blows on the partner and it makes a noise. And, you get a sore nose as well. Yeah. So there are those complicating factors with it. But you're right. If you If you're really symptomatic, you'd put up with that because you feel so good because it's working. Yeah. And you'd put more effort into getting the right mask and yeah. troubleshooting that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If people find that it works for them, they, they make it work. Yeah, yeah. What about the oral appliances like the dental masks, the dental splints, et cetera? Did you want, you going to talk about those? Thank you. That was next on my list. <laughs> <laughs> they're actually one of my personal favourites. I think they've really got a big role to play in managing sleep apnea. And we used to confine the dental appliances to just the very mild end of the range. But the technology's better and the data's better, suggesting that they do work well across a range of sleep apnea severities. The basic principle being a two-piece appliance that sits in the mouth and holds the lower jaw forward in relationship to the top jaw, so therefore moves the tongue away from the back of the airway. There are some devices you can buy, again, over the counter in the pharmacy in the $50 to $100 range. They don't work. Um, there are some uh, the ones that do work are adjustable, customised appliances made by a dentist experienced in making these devices, but they're much more expensive. Uh, you know, it can be eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars to get a device sort of fitted, adjusted, and, and you don't the know aftercare. yet. You don't know if it's going to work for you. I guess once you got to put the money into it to get it properly yeah, done yeah, for you, your mouth. Yeah, yeah, you do. The dentists we would generally work with recognise that's a risk, so mm. they actually offer people 80% of their money back if people find that it's yeah. not working for them that's or they generous. can't tolerate yeah. it, yeah. which I actually think is important because mm. you're right, otherwise mm. it's, a big, it's a leap of faith. It is, to, isn't it? You can't, to make that Well, because you can take a machine back or whatever, but you, you can't really take yeah, take it's a customised moulded to your <laughs> to your teeth. Yeah. And there is a halfway house of a sort of semi-adjustable, semi-customisable do-it-yourself appliance for about three hundred and fifty dollars. That Harvey Norman sells one. They're sort of okay. Mm. The problem is you got no, you got no support. You buy it off the shelf at Harvey Norman. Yeah. You take it home and you try and do it yourself. And if something's not right, good good luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> you got no one to ask. There's to no follow up for you. There's no Danny. No. <laughs> there, yeah, there's no help. Or mm. you get sore teeth or a sore jaw. There's no mm. dentist who's going to be able to sort mm. that out for you. Mm. And also the, the devices don't last very long. It's going to last you a couple of months. Mm. And, you know, in the end, it's probably more efficient to and more cost effective to pay more up front and get a dentist made appliance. Mm. And then the last category I wanted to talk about was surgery. And I had a chance to talk to Stuart Mackay, an ENT surgeon who's really one of the leading experts in sleep apnea surgery in Australia, about the role of surgery. Surgery's got sort of three main roles that you would categorise it as. First is that it has a facilitatory or an adjunctive role. And the example of that would be pre-phase nasal surgery or in some cases of large palatine or lingual tonsil. 
that's most commonly prefaced nasal surgery where we're trying to improve the, the upper airway, the nasal airway, in order to help to lower CPAP pressure requirement uh-huh. or to improve adherence to CPAP or jaw splint. Second role is in salvage surgery where either devices have failed, as in the patient's failed with tolerance or compliance of a device and there's not much hope of them returning to use the device, or they've got significant complications of wearing a device, particularly claustrophobia, mask, um, face interface problems, bloating, numbness, those sorts of things. And in that salvage role, the purpose of surgery is to try and mitigate the extent of their sleep apnea and lower with the intent of lowering risk and improving symptoms and quality of life. And there's a large array of upper air, upper and lower airway procedures to, to try and achieve that, usually in a multi-level fashion. And the third role of surgery is, is in some cases, its primary role, in particular paediatric sleep apnea, where adenocomplexity is the primary therapy. In some cases, of just snoring therapy in adults. And then there's a few other uh, roles that are worth mentioning that relate to global airway therapy, as in craniofacial reconstruction and airway bypass, as in tracheostomy or weight loss surgery in obese patients with sleep apnea. But the key ones would be facilitatory or adjunctive as a salvage procedure to, to reduce the extent of disease and to improve symptoms, and in some cases as primary treatment as in paediatric RSA for adenocomplexity. Although we don't really think about surgery as being curative in adults necessarily, are there any subgroups of adults or types of adults where you go, yeah, I reckon I could make a really big difference here? So it's an important question. I mentioned that the two main roles for salvage surgery is in failed tolerance or compliance of a device or significant complications of a device. But there's two other categories that um, pique interest and create great debate and discussion. And the first is a patient, adult patient, who's got particularly favourable anatomy for an operation. And in that group, you might accept CPAP or device use failure much earlier in, in, in respect of if there's really good anatomy or anatomical features, we might say, well, if they don't want to wear a device or if they can't wear it beyond a certain period of time early on, we're going to go for surgery earlier as opposed to someone else with unfavourable anatomy where we might wait a lot longer or push a lot harder for device use. And the other category is where the patient themselves favour or favours or is directed towards surgery where there's some debate as to how early you might offer that. And when we talk about favourable anatomy, probably the key piece of favourable anatomy in an adult is that patient who's of a, of a near enough to normal body mass index with moderate to large tonsil tissue with predominantly tonsillar-generated collapse when we do dynamic manoeuvres, either awake or asleep, and perhaps a relatively low-sitting tongue, then they're most favourable for, for either tonsillectomy or modified variants of you, triple P surgery with tonsillectomy, with or without perhaps some simple radiofrequency to the tongue uh, to achieve a, a desirable outcome. So we've heard about a range of treatments. How do you actually choose which one's the most appropriate? So that's really challenging, and there's a few different ways of doing that. But traditionally, the way of choosing treatments has been really based on how bad someone's sleep apnea is. Mm -hmm. And so we measure how bad the sleep apnea is as a frequency count of how many times per hour there's a disturbance of breathing during sleep called the apnea hypopnea index. And if it's less than five, we call that normal. Five to 15, we call it mild. 15 to 30, call it moderate greater than 30, call it severe. And I've largely used those categories or bins to determine which sort of treatment. In the severe category, CPAP is what you need. In the moderate category, could be an oral appliance, could be CPAP. In the mild category, yeah, lifestyle factors, oral appliance, still could use CPAP, refer for surgery. That's traditionally what's been done in the field, but there are some limitations with that. 
because everyone's a bit different. Yeah. And that severity measure is actually not necessarily the best measure mm. to determine different ways of working out what type of treatment suits best. So what's better? Well, to get some expert advice, we, we've got some guests we can ask. And so I had a chance to talk to Stuart Mackay, who you heard from earlier, asking him about a different way of selecting treatment based on an anatomical approach. So think of that as looking at the airway from a surgical point of view and just visualising it and saying, is there something about how the airway looks that might predict who'll respond to treatment? We use anatomy. We do a comprehensive anatomical assessment. And that anatomical assessment includes, first of all, anterior rhinoscopy and nasendoscopy of the nasal airway. And in that regard, we're looking for things like nasal valve collapse, septal deviation, prominent inferior turbinates, pus or polyps coming out of the sinonasal pathways, and sometimes even in adults, adenoid hypertrophy. And in that particular group, we're already considering pre-phase nasal surgery. You know, the commonest operations might be septoplasty or septal reconstruction with some turbinate reduction. But some patients might need functional endoscopic sinus surgery or functional rhinoplasty or nasal valve surgery or adenoid reduction, primarily when I say pre-phase, in order to facilitate the next level of treatment, whether that's the CPAP, whether it be mandibular advancement splint, whether it be surgery, or whether it be combining nasal surgeries with weight loss and other adjuvant therapies in someone where we might be able to achieve a result just out of that. The second part of the examination that we then move on to is to assess the facial and transoral features. So the transoral examination will include an assessment of tonsil and tongue size, the tongue position relative to the occlusal or bite plane. Uh, we're looking for micronathia or retronathia or set back or small jaw, uh, maxillary hypoplasia where the upper jaw is, is set back. We're looking for a high um, arch palate with or without narrow arch palate because those are patients that are more complicated for soft tissue surgeries and might be more suitable for hard tissue surgeries. And we're looking at the free edge of the, the position of the free edge of the palate and webbing and redundancy of the uvula in those free edge structures. And when we do that, we're already looking in the context of the patient's other features, body mass index, height, weight, neck circumference, and other sort of global body features. And then the next part we move on to once we've examined the nose and the facial and transoral appearances is a dynamic assessment of the airway. In my hands, usually at least an, an awake dynamic assessment which includes various manoeuvres, including modified Mueller manoeuvres, Woodson's hypotonic method, both with the patient in the supine and the erect position to assess for differences. And we really want patient involvement and effort-related respiratory manoeuvres there, which are the key in providing details about um, the anatomy that's contributing to collapse and the extent of the collapse and what we can achieve. And with those manoeuvres, we, we do certain other things. For example, we get the patient to do a jaw thrust to give us an idea perhaps whether a mandibular advancement splint might be suitable for the patient if it happens to open multiple levels of the airway or globally expand the airway. It's a little bit suggestive that a jaw splint might be better in that patient, say, than someone where a jaw thrust opens up the retrolingual segment, but they're still collapsing significantly at the retropalatal segment. So those are all the kind of things we're looking for. So the sort of stuff I can easily do in my office is look at the nose, the transoral examination, but those dynamic manoeuvres you talked about adds a level of complexity. You've got to have your flexible endoscope, be putting that down the nose. Some people talk about imaging. Is there any role for those techniques? I think there's certainly a role for imaging, and imaging in my hands would be used in a few different contexts. First of all, in sinonasal disease, so especially if we're talking about a patient with chronic rhinosinusitis with or without nasal polyposis, and those patients with fulminant nasal disease, 
might very well need their nose properly sorted out first uh, and they'll often need imaging for that. Sometimes you even have patients who have unilateral nasal pathology such as a tumour or anterocranial polyp or invert papilloma. The second would be the group of patients where there's a suspicion of pathology as occurs in approximately one in every hundred adult patients with sleep breathing disorder. They might have an excessively large goiter or thyrogothal duct cyst that's actually contributing to their airway collapse and snoring and sleep breathing disorder at night and they might need neck imaging such as ultrasound or CT or biopsy. I also use imaging in some cases of borderline or indeterminate calls on tongue size so just to help me clarify. In my hands, I use a specific CT reconstruction protocol with formats that my local radiology group is familiar with, looking at tongue size and surface area and trying to correlate that with my clinical examination. Thanks a lot for your help, Joe. No worries, mate. It's great to hear from Stuart. It's great to hear you know, a surgical point of view. Are there, there must be other points of view as well. Yeah, there are. There's actually been some really interesting research that's not quite ready for clinical practice yet, but thinking about defining the physiological components to sleep apnea. So what are the different things that are going on in a given individual that lead to the airway getting narrow during sleep and how the brain, body, respiratory system respond to that? and using those characteristics to then select a certain type of treatment. So to talk about that and some of the research behind that, I had a chance to talk to Dr. Brad Edwards. And Brad's the Laboratory Head for Sleep and Sleep Disorders at Monash University and is a Senior Research Fellow. So Brad, what are some of the physiological factors that can contribute to obstructive sleep apnea? Yeah, it's a good question. Originally, I guess sleep apnea was thought to be primarily due to a a disorder of, of the upper airway just due to a poor or a highly collapsible upper airway. Mm-hmm. So having a large anatomical predisposition. Yep. As of lately, there's there's been a lot of research in, that's identified these sort of new and, and non-anatomical causes of sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. And so uh, three particular ones are of interest uh, to us and to the greater sort of research community. And, and they are an oversensitive ventilatory control system. So in other words, breathing tries to maintain a level of oxygen and CO2 uh, in the body. And an oversensitive ventilatory control system means that when you when you have reductions or changes in those uh, levels of oxygen and CO2, the breathing control centers are really hypersensitive to that. And that can cause fluctuations in breathing, mm-hmm. which we think uh, helps predispose towards sleep apnea. Another major factor that we think causes sleep apnea or contributes to causing sleep apnea is what's known as a, a low respiratory arousal threshold. Mm-hmm. And that is just a, a, a fancy way of essentially saying that someone wakes up very easily in responses to increased levels of CO2 while they sleep. So when someone starts to have an obstruction and their CO2 levels just start to rise a little bit above where they w- would sit normally, um, the body tells them to wake up from sleep. So that would be someone with a low arousal threshold. And, and is that just arousal to CO2 or is it arousal to noises or other, other type of stimuli? Yeah, so this particular thing that we're talking about is is the arousal to sort of respiratory-induced stimuli, so okay. whether that's CO2, hypoxia or, uh, or, or, or negative effort. What it's shown is, uh, you know, there's some research out there that's that's looked at. You, you tend to wake up at the same respiratory effort, whether it's due to mechanical or, or chemical disturbance. And then the last thing that we think, uh, or the last major factor that's been identified is uh, sort of the 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 ability of the upper airway muscles to respond to respiratory disturbances. We we often think that 
some pe- in some people, these upper airway muscles, they don't really respond and can have an impact and play a role in whether or not someone has sleep apnea or not. And these are things, you've been doing a lot of work in a research sense measuring these in your very complicated physiology sort of setting. Yeah, I, I work true. work in the sort of clinical world and uh, sometimes that sort of stuff's not practical. Now in a research setting, how do you go about measuring these three variables that you've talked about. In a sort of detailed, as you said, like the stuff that we use at the moment is very sort of specific to the physiology lab. And and so the way in which we measure these uh, traits or factors is that we end up getting an individual into the, the lab and we connect them up to a mask and a specialized CPAP machine. And what we do is we cause alterations in that CPAP pressure throughout the night and measure the corresponding changes in ventilation. Mm-hmm. And the way in which we do that allows us to pull out information about each of these physiological factors. So that's the way we do it currently at the moment. And put your sort of look into your crystal ball in five years' time, what will I be doing in my clinical sleep lab if I'm wanting to use these parameters to measure things? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's there's already some work out there now from from our group and, and others that have have looked at well how can how can we do this a lot simply, you know? You know, the way we're currently doing it in the physiology lab requires you to have uh, specialized equipment, requires someone to be there manipulating the pressures all night, yeah. and and it can be quite challenging. And, and, and as you said, it's really unlikely to actually be used in a, in a clinical setting. So some of the focus has been, well, how, how do we do this simply? Yeah. And we've got some, some work out of our, our own lab that uh, was conducted by one of my postdoctoral fellows, Shane Landry. He found that if you look at an individual's therapeutic CPAP pressure, so, you know, we have a heap of people out there at the moment that are on CPAP at at home, we know what their pressure is. He sort of found that that pressure can be used as a pretty good surrogate marker of the anatomy or the collapsibility trait. So Mm -hmm. that's one simple way I think we could measure some of these factors. We've also developed ways that you can measure the arousal threshold by just pulling out and looking at a few of the characteristics that come in your standard sort of sleep study report. So if you look at the AHI, if you look at what's the the near saturation that a person experiences during an overnight PSG and look at the fraction of the the uh, the hypopneas to the apneas, you can use a couple of those criteria to, to get a really good indication of whether an individual is likely to have a low or a high arousal threshold. There's one other technique that's out there at the moment to sort of get at this uh, hypersensitive ventilatory control system, mm-hmm. which is a it's a fancy technique that's sort of been really pioneered by Scott Sands in Boston and, and Phil Terrell in Queensland that fit a mathematical model of, of breathing, if you like, to the traces that occur during an overnight PSG and they can pull out the information about an individual's ventilatory control system, which is, which is pretty cool at the moment. But I guess, you know, to answer your question, what are you going to be doing in five years? I think the ideal situation would be being able to measure all four of these traits in, yeah. in, in the one, sort of having an all-in-one, if you like. And there's some promising data, sort of Scott Sands has, has further developed his method of fitting a ventilatory control model to the breathing that occurs during an in-lab PSG. And he thinks, and he's got some some pretty convincing pilot data that we might actually be able to be pulling all four of these traits out out of a standard clinical in-lab PSG, which is yeah. which is pretty nice, I think, because you know there seems to be a clinically a move away from the in-lab PSG and 
And there's so much information in there that we're yeah. not currently using, right? So, yeah, absolutely. I really like that concept, you know, smarter use of the data we collect already. Yeah, absolutely. And look for signals within it rather than distill it into this simplified thing and lose the richness of that data set. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is just so much information there, isn't there? And And right now it really, you know, not to belittle what we do clinically, but it really just comes down to a, a, a number, which yeah. is essentially just counting how many events happen every hour of sleep. Exactly. Um, so it defaults back to that you know, severity way of assigning treatments, yeah. you know, binning people into severity bands. Yeah, absolutely. So then we're going to measure these sort of physiological variables. How do you use that then to categorise people into a group or for an individual, say, right, you're going to respond to this type of treatment versus you may respond to a different type of treatment? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's a really good question. Like right now at the moment, if uh, if you recommend CPAP to a patient and they don't tolerate it, you've got you've got a number of other options. Mm-hmm. You know, two of the most common ones being oral appliances and, and upper airway surgery. Realistically, what it comes down to is good clinical judgment as to for the clinician as to which therapy is going to you know they're going to recommend to yep. a particular individual, and, and it can it can be pretty challenging for clinicians. I mean, they've got some pretty good clinical intuition, but we know just using clinical intuition alone isn't always that good. Yeah, because I default back to, you know, if I try and think about what my intuition is, what I'm relying on, it is often severity and anatomy. Yeah. And the missing piece for me is the physiology. I sort of have a, you know, a, a smell of the physiology, yeah. but it's only a smell rather than anything yeah. more scientific. And, and and that's a good point to touch on, right? These particular interventions like this, the oral appliance and the surgery are interventions that are really only going to a- attack and, and target that anatomical component of sleep apnea. But mm-hmm. we know that there are a variety of other factors. There are these three non-anatomical traits that we've already just talked about. And whether or not they have, ab- you know, the individual has abnormalities in those can really play a key role in determining success or not. We've got some some pretty exciting work that's in publication at the moment looking at oral appliances and upper airway surgery. And it, and it shows that you can, if you know a person's anatomy and if and their other physiology, like their their ventilatory control sensitivity, you can do really well in predicting who's likely to respond to these, I guess, non-CPAP interventions. So understanding more about why a particular individual has sleep apnea, we think, is really going to help push the field forward. But I think what we need now is we need more studies, we need more evidence that backs this sort of stuff up. We've only really just scratched the surface here. And if you find that that arousal threshold's an issue or there's too much gain in the system, can you dampen that with medications or modulate that with medication? Yeah, right now we've we've done some work that if you if you've got a hypersensitive ventilatory control system, you can lower that by by giving people supplemental oxygen or, or perhaps even a drug. Um, and we've had some experience with a drug called acetazolamide, which is often given actually to help altitude sickness when you when you go climbing up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. But we've actually seen that that actually can also lower the sensitivity of the ventilatory control system. So we we hear sedatives are bad for sleep apnea, but might there be a time that sedatives are actually good for sleep apnea? I think it, it, it ties in again to that giving the right treatment to the, to the right patient. There is certainly some individuals with sleep apnea who you really wouldn't want to be giving sedatives to, like mm-hmm. those individuals that already potentially have, say, long respiratory events that with with all with quite large desaturations. Mm-hmm. 
giving a sedative to sort of prolong arousal to sleep is probably not ideal in that situation. So you probably want to avoid those individuals. I think we need a lot more evidence than we currently have about who those people are. But if we tie back to the physiology and we think about who these sorts of drugs are are likely to to benefit from, they're, they're probably going to be effective in the individual that doesn't have a major anatomical predisposition to sleep apnea, so has a sort of a, that mild sort of collapsibility, if you like, mm-hmm. that 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 has this low arousal threshold, so that, you know, so that by giving a sedative, you help to raise that arousal threshold, mm-hmm. and that already has probably good underlying upper airway muscle function, so that they're able to sort of, you know, increases in respiratory effort, activate the muscles, and help to reopen the airway. And I'd say that um, there's been actually a fantastic uh, review written by this on this topic by Amy Jordan. So if anyone's out there that's interested in in a really good review of this, I'd recommend that uh, you read that paper. It was published this year in the Blue Journal. The key really is, though, at the moment, is that while we've shown that you can manipulate the physiology, the next step really for us is really giving the right treatment to the right person. And it's really, we, you know, we've got to do a bit more, you know, work in in figuring out what the right person is for the right, you know, treatment, if you like. Yeah, and I really like the work that you're doing for me is heading towards the way we're going in other areas of medicine, that precision medicine approach and individualising treatment rather than assigning it by group, which for me is how the severity stuff works. You fit in that group, therefore you get that treatment. So keep doing the work you're doing. I really love uh, what you've been doing. (laughs) Yeah, thanks very much. No worries. So it's really nice to hear Brad's approach. So now, Moira, I've got it covered. I've got the severity way of choosing what to do. I've got the anatomical way, and now I can apply the physiology. So I'm all sorted. I'm ready to tell people what to do. That's all I need, isn't it? Well, no. (laughs) In fairness, people do come to you to, they look to you to tell them what to do, to advise them. But I guess in essence, as you would know, people can sometimes feel bit overwhelmed with all the various choices. They might want to sec- have a second opinion sometimes. Uh-huh. They can f- Sometimes people feel, it depends if they trust their physician or their surgeon or their practitioner, sometimes they may feel they're being kind of sold a product mm-hmm. or, or a service that they, um, that it's all comes down to business sometimes. People are really highly sceptical more and more, I think, and the, the sleep field's becoming a bit more, there's a few more, there's lots of gadgets and lots of things out there. Yeah. So it's a bit of a minefield, I think, that we have to be really mindful of making sure that yes, there's these other your your approach will be based on their anatomy or their physiology, or but other things like just what what they actually want to do, what they think fits for their lifestyle, fits for their their economic situation. You're absolutely right, and so I find myself generally describing to people the different types of treatments that I think yeah. may work for them, which I would put at the sort of top of my recommendation list. Yeah. But then it's a negotiation and yeah. a collaborative decision about. Yeah. And they may come back to me and say, yeah, that's top of your list, but you know what, I'd prefer to start with number two, and if that doesn't go okay, I'll come back to number one. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't have to be linear or all or nothing. Sometimes people can actually try different things. Does your mouth and your your jaw and things, they change with age perhaps. Yeah, the bony structure doesn't change so much, Mm. but we get floppier. As we get older, <laughs> not just externally, but Ain't that the, the truth. <laughs> the, the back of the airway gets floppier too. Yeah, uh, and so it changes as we get older, and the way the brain responds to what happens in the back of the airway changes as we get older. So you're right. What mm. suits a treatment that suits somebody at one point and one set of circumstances in life may not be what suits them mm. at another point in life and another set of circumstances. 
So if you're looking for more information on sleep apnea treatment, there's a number of posts on Sleep Hub about the individual treatments. I've also included links to some of the research papers from Dr. Brad Edwards and uh, Danny Eckert and their respective research groups, which talk really nicely about the physiology of uh, evaluating sleep apnea and some of the ways we might approach it in the future. Uh, Professor Stuart Mackay has also been involved in some great research of surgical techniques uh, about how to approach sleep apnea and snoring, and I've put some links to Stuart's papers. So what's your pick of the month, Dave? Oh, there's a fantastic article that I saw in uh, featured on the ABC that was both a written blog but then also an interview on Life Matters, so mm-hmm. an audio sort of part to it, mm-hmm. talking about architecture and how people had used architecture, design and choice of materials to design a bedroom that was uh, sort of a safe sleep environment. And the case example was someone who'd had a difficult sort of upbringing and many, many years of insomnia following some challenging circumstances early in life, so some traumatic-type experiences. So people we see with that uh, previous exposure want a safe bedroom environment, so they feel like it's safe and dark and quiet. And it's just a great discussion about how someone had designed this house and used novel use of materials, novel use of space and how they designed the space to create a really useful, functional bedroom that did exactly what they wanted it to do. Wow. Fantastic. So, and safe as in even the design of where the bed is in the bedroom, that, that sort of level? or Not, not to, not not to, to where the bed extent. is, yeah. but, but to Just, where the room was the, positioned within the house, yeah, yeah. Um, the access to that room. Yeah. Um, and oh, really interesting. Right. So it wasn't just about yeah, interior design. Very it was actually about floor plan type of design. Yes. And did the people involved with that discussion or that did were they had they talked to people say like you, like people anyone who has any interest in the sleep world? No. Which no. is great. Yeah. Be- because yeah. we come with our own biases. And yeah. if someone says to me the perfect bedroom, I'd take the C B T approach and go, Ah, oh, you've got to learn to sleep anywhere and anytime <laughs> under any circumstances. Don't design the perfect sleep sanctuary, yeah. you know. That, yes. that type of thing. So yes. great to see ideas that don't come with that bias. Yeah. From outside. Just purely sort of organic. Yeah. Sort of from outside. Design design principles. Mm. So I highly recommend a, a read and a listen. To that. What, what about for you, Maura? Well, my pick of the month was an article or a research journal article by Ian Dunican and colleagues. And we've had Ian as a guest before with our sports and sports and performance and sleep. Mm-hmm. He's well known to our listeners, hopefully. And he's as a very recent article. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Yeah, it's, I saw it. Yeah, yeah, looking at the elite athletes in judo who were on a like a camp, a training camp at the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. So they're allocated to either business as usual with your using devices mm-hmm. at night and you know, throughout the camp. You you know your your, your screens. Yeah. And a group that were allocated to not allowed to use them for 48 hours across in the middle bit of that camp. And interesting, I just thought, and unfortunately, well, fortunately, there, there was no difference. They didn't yeah. find any difference in terms of, uh, you know, sleep or onset of sleep or performance the next day or anything like that. So because we're always talking to people all the time about, you know, get off your screens, get yeah. off your devices, yeah. make sure, you know, an hour or two before sleep. And so, and I I know I find myself saying those messages all the time and I'm thinking, gee, there's not a lot of, there's not a stack of data necessarily around that or, or is there. Anyway, and so 
but I just obviously the findings here. There's room for expansion of that. Yeah. Because I don't know. It doesn't mean that there is no impact. It's just this is a tiny little study, and it was just two days in the middle of the camp anyway. Yeah. And, and, and you know, an idea, you know, um, arguably in in a not in a real world setting. So on a sort of camp at AIS. Yeah, and, yeah. with a uh, number of variables. I mean, yeah. how you can't control any of the variables. So it was yeah. just a sort of observational data. But like a lot of the things in sleep, just raises more questions and makes us think about, you know, truths that we believe in. Are they really truths? And how much of it is truth and which pieces are the truth and, which, right. and which aren't? So look out for things that are coming up uh, in the next couple of months uh, about sleep. Uh, and in particular, there's some sleep conferences coming up and you're talking, Moira, at Sleep Down Under in Auckland. Yes, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and you're talking about mindfulness. I know that's one of the sessions that you're doing. What other sessions are you involved with? What else am I involved with? I'm involved with the, the what we call the year in review mm-hmm. and looking at insomnia and sleep health. I'll, I'll be travelling to India at the end of October for a conference and something that's come up that I'm really excited about is I'll be talking to a group of parents of kids with special needs in Delhi. So this is something really close to uh, my heart that you'll hear a bit about in our next episode where we talk about sleeping kids with special needs but i will be talking at a center in delhi which is you know there's very few centers for kids with disability in Mm. india this Mm. is one of the first centers in the country that caters to kids with special needs and neurological problems and to be able to talk with parents of uh, kids with special needs in india about how to manage sleep is something i'm really looking forward to great opportunity yeah well, we'll draw you out more on that in the next episode. I know, once I've prepared, well, prepared a we- bit for my talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck with that. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you've got any suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au or you can send us any comments. If you like the show, uh, review us on iTunes and you can subscribe via any podcast uh, app or via the Sleep Talk app in the iOS store. Thanks, Moira. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk next month. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.